Welcome to We Really Need to Talk, a podcast about the conversations we could be having with our loved ones. These are conversations with the power to improve the way we live, the way we age, and the way we die. Talking about what we want for the end of our lives is not easy, but we've found it to be useful and powerful and suspect that others may as well. My name is Elizabeth Bergman, Associate Professor of Gerontology at Ithaca College. And I'm Lisa Richards, the Program Coordinator for the Finger Lakes Geriatric Education Center. We are co-hosting this podcast from the studio at Ithaca College, where we work together in the Gerontology Institute. We spend our days immersed in teaching, studying, and developing programs on topics many would prefer to avoid altogether, or maybe just whisper about fearfully. We have seen firsthand, time and again, the consequences of not talking about the end of life, but we've also witnessed the power of talking about it, and that is our motivation for making this podcast. Hi, and welcome back to We Really Need to Talk. We're so glad you joined us today. Today we're going to talk about how death can redefine how you live your life with our guest, Kimberly Paul. She's been in town for a couple of days doing some local talks and speaking in classes about some really interesting stuff, and we want to keep these conversations going with her. So let's just get to introducing her. Great. So Kimberly Paul, welcome to the podcast studio. We're so thrilled you're here. Thanks. Kimberly Paul joins us from North Carolina. She had a a long career in film and after a career in television, found herself volunteering for a hospice organization, which led to a calling and a career working in hospice and palliative care. Uh, And in the last few years, Kimberly Paul has been left working for hospice formally and has been on tour of the country in an RV. We're going to hear about that. And uh, talking with people about life and death and how those two things work together and how we can reclaim our life by talking about death, by being open, by making space for conversations that aren't typical in our society. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. This is weird for me because usually I'm doing the interviewing. But I have to say, I've only been here a few days and I'm just so in love with A, Ithaca College and what they're doing in this field. And I touche them and I hope they keep putting resources into you guys because this is going to be uh, in the forefront as the baby boomers still keep aging. And we need to be more aware of a, how we how we hope to live, but really how we hope to age well. So I'm really impressed by the college and what they're doing, um, supporting your institute and and bringing someone like me in to connect with your community. So that really should say I, that's what I want to say because there's not a lot of colleges out there or universities doing that, and I'm really impressed by that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the podcast. The podcast is called Death by Design. Right. Right. It came, the whole title Death by Design came from design thinking. So about thinking about things in different ways and inviting a lot of different people around the table to have their perspective um, and to share their perspective. So Death by Design was, it's how how do you design your own end of life or how do you design a life in order to die well? But also, how many people can we get around a table to look at this topic 
in a different way, artists, creatives, writers, physicians, you know, just not the medical community, but the everyday person who is on the end result of what I call, you know, healthcare, which is disease management system. And, and so I thought collectively, how do we have a language um, about a, a similar subject or the same subject, but see things from different perspectives, not just from the physician, not just from the physician that's writing the book, but actually the caregiver that is falling through the cracks and the patient who's falling through the cracks or feels like they're falling through the cracks and and collectively have a, a joint conversation. Now, what I've done is is just interviewed people and we're in our, our fifth and most likely final year because I'm moving on to a docu-series called Why Wait, is how do how does the dying push me outside of my own comfort zone? And it's it's hopefully going to be between, you know, four to six episodes of me journeying with people who are actually in those final stages and really still pushing me with not living with a chronic disease of how I can live better and live more boldly in the present moment and sharing some of their wisdom. So, you know, I, I try to get away from being creative, but I just think that I was born that way. And I love to share stories. And this is sort of what I've been sharing the last 22 years. And really, that's what it's all about is connecting with people and telling an authentic story, which I, a real story, not creating a story like I thought I would love to do. And still, a part of me wants to do that for television and film. It's all, all about telling that story. And I think the human story uh, is is really what's intrigued me um, because it's flawed, it's imperfect, it's broken. And I think that makes it beautiful. And Kimberly really does have so many great stories that we've heard <laughs> over the past few days. And the one that keeps springing to my mind is the host by story. So do you think that you could just, for our listeners, let them know like how you how you got into this? You know, it's it's really interesting. When I had a death in the family, I decided to volunteer with Ho Spice. And I was sitting in the in the lobby. Yeah. A lot of people like, what is she talking about? I'm like, yeah. I mispronounced hospice, called it Hospice. So I'm in this Hospice little lobby waiting for someone to come interview me to be a volunteer. And actually, I guess they were in actually interviewing for a paid position, a volunteer program manager. And they confused me. And they invited me back into this interview. And I was like, they kept shooting questions. There was like five or six people and asking for my CV. And I'm like, what? I mean, and at one point, I'm like, this is really crazy. You guys care a lot about your volunteers, don't you? And they're like, of course we do. And all of this. And and I think someone in the interview is like, wait a minute, you are very much aware that this is we're interviewing for a paid position. And like any good trained social worker, I'm like, well, tell me more about that. And, and you know, before before I left, they just were really intrigued and they offered me the job. And so that's how <laughs> I tripped into this. I just love that. Yeah. I, you know, I've never really wanted to work in healthcare, but it desperately, I think, wanted me to be a part of it. And with all things, I think just my personality, when I start believing in something and start really hearing stories... I'm the person that dies on the sword. You know, I'm going to fall. I'm, I'm, I've picked a side and it's aging well side and, and hospice and palliative care. And, and I feel like I'm a, a warrior 
for those who don't know what how the system can be and they get lost in it and they get confused by it and I feel like I have that superhero cape, like I'm going to save the day because I'm not going to allow you to get lost in a system that is going to perhaps lower your quality of life and not always tell you the truth. But I have to say in the same vein that there are a lot of clinicians out there working in this field that find themselves very distraught about what the healthcare system and how it operates the medical atmosphere. And I've seen many clinicians just disturbed of of what the system has done to prolong suffering and prolong death. So I don't think it's a black or white. I think there are many people as clinicians being just as big warriors like myself to to make sure that people understand in a in the ICU that what we're doing to to prolong this. Um, but I I have to I have to say that I think I have the trump card, and that's the individual, the patient, and the family. If we know what we want, we can direct a care. When we don't know what we want, we allow others within the system to navigate that for us, which can be very dangerous. Yeah, and I think things that we talked about yesterday at your talk about having the healthcare proxy name, the person that can really speak as you, right, not even for you, is so important in this and not letting the person get lost. Because you hear a lot about person-centered care, but are we really doing it? Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the problem is, why people aren't upset. You know, when people, when someone tells them, no, I want to be that three-year-old again. Why? 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 Because we hire individuals to advise us. And that's what I see clinicians doing or should be doing instead of projecting what they feel the care and the trajectory. I say, lay it all out, educate people and let them make the right decisions. But if we're not speaking the truth that, hey, you can take this treatment and you most likely will die even quicker, or we can send you home with comfort care, but either way, this will take your life. And I don't like to talk about battle. I don't like to talk about losing. It just sucks. A a chronic disease is sometimes genetic, sometimes not. But anyone with a chronic disease, especially upon diagnosis, if it's early stage, learn about it. Know the options. Get someone to sit down with you and say, okay, we all are going to die. We know where we're going. But how does this chronic disease play into how we do that? And be educated. And not to say that you won't change your mind, but the education and the research will guide you. And I believe that's the key. I don't believe we should ask our clinicians to be our sole provider of guidance. And I don't believe the individual who's unaware of really the trajectory of what a chronic illness can do to a human life and lessen the quality of life. I think we just, we both know that we are dying, but we're not having the conversation about what might cause that. And here are the many multiple roads that it could take based on your knowledge of what's going on, as well as your decisions in that knowledge. So I just say that this healthcare system is an intersection with no stop signs. 
And if you are aware of, of what the role you play, you put up that stop sign. And if the physician is a truth seeker and a true truth teller, he will put up a stop sign. And maybe we have a chance for everyone to pause and not have emotional reactions, which most likely if you are emotionally driven and don't have the conversation, you will wind up in the hospital on event and ICU, never really having the full knowledge that you are dying and really stealing away those moments of goodbye and I love you. And I think that's what I'm fighting for. It's not really for, you know, it is aging well, but I'm fighting for connection. You know, I'm fighting for people to speak authentically and knowing that hard conversations, that's life and how we embrace them and acknowledge them and how that plays a role in our decisions moving forward is vital in our quality of life. And that's what I'm fighting for, is that human impulse and that human connection and how do we protect it. I I was saying something, and I I read something recently with everything going on in the media these days. It's it's like if we want a collective humanity, we got to stop justifying what threatens it. And I so believe in that. And, and that means making people sometimes uncomfortable, like physicians, like our caregivers, like saying to our healthcare power attorney, no, that's not what I want. This is what I want. And if you're unable to do that, because you're not speaking for me, you're speaking as me. You have no decision, but I need you to be my voice when I don't have one. And so that is probably one of the key decisions you will ever make in your life. But yet we... When we're 15 or 16, we make an end-of-life decision as a donor on our license, and it's, we say, well, we've normalized that. It's, it, people aren't, don't feel like that's an end-of-life decision, but you're talking about your death, and if you're found in a car wreck, your organs are going to be gone. How do we get to that point? And, you know, I really want us to even take that license a little bit further with a with a code or something to say, I do have a health care power of attorney, and here's how to find that in a registry, and so we can contact them and navigate it with, with communication. But, like, I'm so confused with America sometimes because we make it so much harder than it is by, you know, we have 50 states, we have 50 different ways to talk about advanced care planning, and titles and what we call it and who to be. And and right now in a mobile society, people are living sometime in Florida, sometimes with caregivers. And, and we've got to get on the same page and not continue to make it harder than it is because it's already hard. And we just raise that level. And as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it because I've seen too many people prolong and suffer at end of life. And I've seen too many families look like they this is the first time they're hearing that their mother or father is dying and how we die and please listen to this how we die and face our end of life is how we leave the world in a state of grief behind us you know how how we die is how people are going to grieve us if it's shocking it's going to take a long time for them to understand what happened um, many of times I would walk into an ICU room with my hospice badge on and and their eyes, you could see the pain like mama's dying. And I wanted to grab them and say, well, mom's been dying for two years. And, and they had all this time to process that and it was stolen from them. Not necessarily by a physician or someone in the medical community, but their own cells without asking the right questions. And and it's very important that I feel like we own our collective responsibility 
And these days, it's so important to blame someone because of our own actions. And I want to reclaim that. I don't want to blame anyone. And I want to know, and then I want to make decisions, and then I want to take a breath knowing that if something tragically would happen to me, that everyone knows, A, how I feel, how I'd approach it, and I have someone to speak on my behalf if I can't. And that, to me, frees me up and brings me right back to this moment and makes me live life more boldly. So when you ask me about this, I'm really talking about life and how I live. We've talked over the course of the last couple of days. I've shared stories with you. You've shared stories with me. And, and we've talked a little bit about my own mother's death in 2017. And I was not her healthcare proxy. My father was. But, but he and I were both at her bedside, you know, the whole time she was in the ICU. And and very much working as a team. And my dad was a, my dad is a really educated man. He's a smart man. He, he thinks critically. And yet in that setting, interacting with healthcare professionals who were, as we've talked about, speaking a different language, right? I was witness to just how challenging it can be to be a healthcare proxy, sort of not knowing or in the emotion of the moment, not always feeling empowered to say, hey, hold up, time out. What are you saying? What does that mean? Where do we go from here? How do we empower healthcare proxies or healthcare power of attorneys, those people who are speaking as us and not for us, the bedside or in the healthcare system? How do we empower those folks to? really take the time to dig deep and get what they need to make sure that they are speaking as someone who can't speak for themselves. Yeah, you know, we forget that being a healthcare power attorney, we really have no decisions. And it has to be a conversation. Not even the form itself is is like what if scenarios. So it's not a one conversation. It's not a two conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. And I have challenged many people when they have asked me, like, okay, I use a, a card deck called the death deck. Here, Here's one. You know, if you came back to life and you wanted to sleep with a famous person, who would it be? And it starts off like that. And then it's like, okay, if you're in ICU and you can't speak and there's no, you're not going to improve, what would you do? It's all of these scenarios because it's so important to me to make sure that I don't have any decisions. And you you bring up a really good point about being in the hospital, being downloaded with all of this information about what's going on. And I encourage the healthcare power of attorney just to say, hey, is this going to really affect her quality or his quality. This is going to change the results of the road that we're going down. And it really allows the clinician to be like, no, it's not. Okay, then I don't need to know that crap. We're going to do this. And and I, f- I feel we all become children again if there's an authority figure. I mean, even, even me, 22 years of hospice and palliative care. You know, my grandmother told me exactly how it was going to be. And it, she gave me an eye opening. I'm like, oh my God, I'm projecting what I want for her onto her. And I don't think clinicians have a bad intention. I think that sometimes they know more and they want to project, hey, there is a little bit of hope, but a little bit of hope with the all, all this whole other suffering aspect of it, 
that's not that's not what this person wants, nor do I am I interested in watching that. Okay. So you wrote a book. I did. Bridging the Gap, Life Lessons from the Dying. Even though I am a social worker, I don't see myself clinical. I see myself as an interpreter of med speak. And so I do sort of bridge the gap from interpreting what doctors and clinicians talk about and then interpreting that to kind of in an understandable way for caregivers and families. Being a storyteller, I like to tell that in stories. And so the book evolved around 15 stories that really profoundly impacted me by just being present. And one of the greatest lessons that I've learned by these stories and being present at the bedside of the dying is showing up is so difficult. But it is one of the easiest things to do. And showing up and being present, I, I'm so grateful part of me was there because I would maybe perhaps not have, the stories might have not have had the impact that they did. And I, I do remember driving away from the hospice care center and my work every day, every once in a while and thinking, did that happen? Did this really happen? And so, yeah, the dying have become my greatest teachers about life by sharing their stories. And I just felt so empowered that I could not let these stories die. Maybe they could impact other people. And I just thought that I wanted to open the door to to all individuals knowing that dying individuals are still living and death is just a moment. And I feel as as people grow older, they become less respected. And, and I think we should pay homage to those who have been through so many things. I think we, we lessen the impact of what the greatest generation has, has shown us, and that's being pliable in all different generations. And right now, you've got elderly people on Zoom and death cafes. And, you know, we, we try to limit like, oh, they're not capable of that. And we push what we think onto them. And and this was a way by telling these stories in this book to say that that they are just as much alive as they ever were in their life. And I'm so grateful whatever sort of occurred that I was there in that moment and was able to to hear the stories and then later be a vessel for those stories. And uh, people say your book, it really isn't my book. It's the 15 individuals and maybe even the 20 individuals that appear in this book that that really radically changed how I live and how I will die. And I feel that they journey with me every day, reminding me of, you know, yeah, I know you want to stay inside and watch Netflix and you're an introvert and you should do that. But, you know, what if you miss this opportunity to connect with other human beings? And it just pushes me outside of my own comfort zone. And, and I feel like I'm living for them. Like some of the individuals that I don't think it showed up in the book a lot about talked about regrets and they made it very impactful. Like they kept asking me, what are you waiting for? You know, what are you waiting for? You know, say you're sorry. Say it doesn't, don't get caught up in, in, in all of this minutia. It doesn't matter. You're going to die and how you die, even if you ask for forgiveness and they can't do it, it's playing, you're playing your role. And so they just, They've just built me in a way that 
and I'm still evolving, but in the person that I truly desire to be. Um, and so, yeah, those are the lessons. And I just didn't want those stories to die with me. And there's personal, There, I do share a couple of personal stories about my grandmother and Rob and, and things like that. So it's my journey of of going from a career of wanting to be in television and writing stories and yet taking a 360 degree turn to the left and putting in a position that it's about living. And I, I think that it's, and I'm still learning. I mean, they've, those, those individuals, the dying have taught me to always be a student that I'm never solely right that it's always looking at someone else's perspective. And it's made me very soft to human beings. And and I love that. I really do. That reminds me of the Carl Pillemer's book, right? The Cornell Gerontologist, where he interviews all those people. Um, and I always, what it reminds me of is when people get in these like midlife crises modes or they're stuck or whatever in their 40 or 50 or 50s or whatever. And they're like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I think, are you going to when you're 80, are you going to be like, why didn't I do that? You know, you feel like you're too old to do things now or whatever. And that's what they talked about too. Like not having regrets about things you don't do and not staying in a job you don't love because you spend so much so much time at a job or worrying about money all the time when you'll get by, you'll like live your life, you know, don't, you get so caught up in these things that you just are kind of, kind of, kind of, you know, stuck and frozen in one place. Yeah. I love, and I, I keep a record of when people, the first, you know, and I can't remember who they are, but so-and-so published their first book at 55. And, you know, it's like those things that I just turned 50 and it's like, oh, I feel like I have a chance to slide down the slide now or keep climbing and make the slide taller. And I choose to keep climbing. To me, this moment in this room, with the two of you guys is the most important moment in my life connecting with you. And if we can live our life like that, then maybe we can change the world. One person, one connection at a time. Um, Go back to our roots. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) So speaking of back to the roots and best life and doing all those things you want to do, we got to talk about the Live Well, Die Well tour because really this is how we connected with you because one of our former staff members, Zach, Oh, yeah. Um, he saw you on that tour and he came to us. Oh, this woman's so cool. You got to check her out. And that's when we first approached you about, we got to get her here. That's right. Yeah. So tell us about that. Tell her about Well, first of all, that. you know, I, I never want to do, again, it's like I never say never because I did not see myself driving across the country in an RV with a German Shepherd alone, hauling my car behind it. And I never thought I would have 37 sponsors around the death positive movement supporting me and my efforts. The book came out and I... I knew that I had to be the number one marketer of that. And I was like, how do I do this? And just circumstances, a conversation with a friend and, you know, a burning bush, which is a whole nother story. But I challenged like, I'm never going to do this. And and I am a spiritual person. And, and some things occurred that I didn't want to test that. I think it was the way it was supposed to go. And, I, I, and every step of the way is like, well... If it's meant to be, then I'm going to get an RV. And the RV came. And then if it's meant to be, I'm going to be able to rent my house really easy. Then I was rented it out. And it became like, okay, then how am I going to pay for this? And then if it's meant to be, people are going to find me. And Cabot Cheese comes and says, poof, hey, we want to be your number one sponsor of the tour. And, And then it just sort of evolved. And I started plotting 
where I would start and how I would end. And my goal was to drive to 49 states. And one of the most painful things in my life is on state 46 in Portland, Oregon, this pandemic happened. And four states short of the driving tour goal and five states short of 50 states. And I found myself reeling from grief of, and I'm not the only one. It didn't affect just me. And, but it, the tour ended, but yet what really got me through the entire ending of the tour and not coming to fruition of let's meet in Washington and change the world and get a congressional hearing and get people to really listen to us in the, in this field was the connections along the way. I could not really embrace that the tour was a failure because it ended short because there were so many triumphs of human connection along the way. So could you talk about like like a typical, like some state you pulled into or some <laughs> campground you pulled? So just to give the listeners yeah, an idea sure. of what, what was so, happening. Well, of course, the, the RV was wrapped and Cabot Cheese wrapped the RV. So it had this like NASCAR look to it, but it had logos of all this, you know, positive. And let's talk about then Michael Fronte's nonprofit. And I mean, just all of these things. So when I rolled up in like a KOW and every, especially on a Friday when I had a couple of days off and people were like cracking open a brewski and, and they just sort of stared at me like walking driving in and and you know when you have a wrapped rv you forget that it's wrapped and you're like oh hey hey and people are like what is this crazy person doing and of course because it is a 29 foot wrapped rv and i have a german shepherd and it has live well die well on it people will come up and like let me go ask this chick a, a question. First, they're like asking me, can I help you with this? Because you totally don't, don't look capable of taking this car off this and doing all that. But I, but I, <laughs> and so they, it started off like that. But then they started asking like, hey, what are you doing? And I would tell them. And I would tell them that I was inspired by being at the bedside of the dying to tell their stories. And here's my personal story. And suddenly People were around a fireplace and for the first time just sharing their story. And I thought, man, the more I talk about my story, I think it gives and opens a door and gives permission for people to share their story. And I remember in Hollywood, Florida, I'm sitting there and there was, I think it was the Super Bowl. No, it wasn't the Super because it was right before Christmas because I was in the Keys at Christmas. But I'm with two, I mean, all of them are strangers, but I, someone brought their guitar and someone brought chili and someone, we were, had the football game on and we were all sitting there. And my friend Fabian, we, we mentioned, I mentioned something about my grandmother and he just starts crying. A grown man starts crying and he starts telling the story about his grandmother and I'm like, holy cow. And then the then my the friend that was playing the guitar, now they're friends. They were complete strangers then. He starts playing like a little softer music and someone kind of closes the television and we we come around this this bonfire that is just about connection and loss and people are crying, people are laughing. And I mean, Fabian at one time started laughing. My grandma would, would kick my butt if she knew I was crying over this. And and then we started laughing about that. And to the point that now Becky and Fabian are married and they welcome their first baby. And and it's they're down in Virginia Beach now. And the the connection and the explosion of of keeping in touch with people and the people that I've met and to see 
to see them growing and living life beyond their grief is probably the most rewarding things I've ever seen. But we had to talk about it. And I believe that the one thing we forget is that conversation, and even if we don't have words and we just cry, it's a way to express. And I think that we grieve as as differently as our fingerprints are. And we have to make room for that and be okay with people sharing their feelings because I believe our stoicness and keeping it all inside has created so much mental trauma for us. And I, I want to, and again, that gives me another lesson of just like, I don't want to create mental trauma. And next door neighbor in Wilmington walked over and was like, my mom died and you know, my sister and I are trying to get him to clean out the closet and he's going to the cemetery every day. What do you think? How can we help him? And I just said, well, I ask you one question. Does it make him feel good to go in the closet and to smell the clothes and her perfume? Does it make him feel good to go to the cemetery? And she's like, well, I think so. I'm like, then let him do it. Who cares? Let those clothes stay there until he's ready. And if he's never ready, then unfortunately, you will have to get rid of them. But right now, if that's what he needs, then let him walk that journey. And just say, Dad, whenever you're ready, we can help you with this stuff, but only when you're ready. And and so many times we want, in America, we want to skate through grief. Oh, your mom died? See you in three days. Good. Go pay. We'll go pay for three days. Come back. And it's just not, it forces us back into a role that we're not ready to be. Because when you have an inner circle, an immediate family that you're close to, let's just say your mom, when they die, I believe you die too. And grief is the rebirth of you becoming the person you are without them. And that is hard. That's really hard. And so if we realize in ourselves that we as a person, when we lose someone that intimately, we die with them, a part of us, and who we see ourselves. I remember my dad, after he lost his mom and his dad died years ago, he said, I'm an orphan. And he just felt like, I, I don't, I'm an orphan. I don't have anyone. I'm like, I don't know what that feels like, but one day I will. And so, you know, being homeless a little bit right now, trying to figure out the next things in my life, having moments with my father, watching Duke basketball or watching Star Wars, which was a child, it's so valuable to me because I will never regret that. And I, I think that we, we try to scoot through grief and we don't pause and just meet people where they are. If you live well, you might just have a chance to die well. And if you lean into life, then maybe you might just lean into death. And as much as I've been traveling and being homeless in the last few months, you know, what I don't even know what's next, but all I know is that it's going to be great. And I I look forward to the unknown. You just I, I hope it's not going to be in an RV though, but if it is, I hope to do it well. But I, I hope to be settled sometime in the next 30 days. And I've got so many amazing opportunities that I feel so honored that it's going to be hard to pick. 
the last two days have been so powerful, and I know that I'm not unique. There are a lot of other people, students and community members and and my coworkers who who feel the same way. So I want to say thank you for spending this time with us and for being so generous of spirit and so generous with your time and your stories and your vulnerability. And we're just really glad you could spend this time with us. For listeners who want to know you better, uh, how can they connect with you? You can always reach out. I have a website called deathbydesign.com, and uh, you can email me through that. I can't express what you guys have meant to me. I feel like I'm going to be back at Ithaca, and you never know what kind of role. I feel like this is just the beginning of our story together, and so I look forward to what that means, too. So thank you for hosting me, for making me feel valued and, and my stories. Thank you for that, and and just for being present yourself um, and being open to hearing a different way to think about these hard what people seem to see as taboo subjects. So thank you. Thank you. You are a connector. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you because thank you. I, I pride myself on that. And, and thank you. Yes, I am a connector. Thank you so much for listening to We Really Need to Talk. You'll find more information and links in the show notes. We hope you'll continue to tune in as we talk with end-of-life experts and champions of tough conversations who will teach us more about the important questions and how to ask them of our loved ones and healthcare providers. We hope you'll subscribe on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our contact info is also in the show notes. Drop us a line and let us know your thoughts, your questions, or ideas you have for future episodes, or just say hello. And remember, starting is the hardest part, but we really do need to talk.